We're looking at the subject, the joy of preparation from 1 Thessalonians 5. And the first thing you'll note in your bulletin outline is this, that Jesus' second coming will burst on the world by surprise. You can think about surprise a number of different ways. If I say to you this morning, surprise! Thornville Baptist Church has just been given a grant of $1 million a year for the next five years by Warren Buffett. That'll never happen. <laughs> He's an enemy of the gospel. But if I were to say that, that would be quite a surprise, wouldn't it? And it would be a, probably a pleasant surprise. I'll spend the world's money if they want to donate it. Or I could say, surprise! The doctor has just given you a notice that you have a terminal disease. Now that's news too, but that's unwelcome news. So surprise can be used in those dimensions. And when we say that Jesus' second coming will burst on the world by surprise, it's more in the latter category. It's not necessarily good news. The key thought in our text is found in verse 2. The day of the Lord will come, says Paul, like a thief in the night. Now that's the surprise part, but think about the, the analogy here. Thief, night. Mm, not a good surprise. Not a good surprise. Thieves do not announce their presence when they come to break into your home and steal your valuables. In Matthew's history, Jesus worded it this way, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they, I'm reading scripture, knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away? I asked this question. Were they surprised? Yeah, they were surprised. He goes on to say, That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew 24, 37 through 39. Verse 42 of the text says, Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. That's from the Matthew text. Now the thief scenario is clearly meant to indicate surprise. No one knows when a thief intends to break into a house and rob it. That is precisely the point of the reference. Thieves hide themselves in the black of darkness. They disguise their appearance with dark colored clothing so they kind of blend in. They may even wear a mask trying to avoid detection. They make no announcement of their coming. They give no clues, no indicators of their whereabouts or of what homes or businesses 
they planned to rob. Thieves just burst on the scene. Here in an instant, gone in a flash, banking their success on the element of surprise. Really trying to milk that for all it's worth. And the robbed, you and I, were left in utter shock with our jaws dropped and our valuables stolen. And we say, how could this happen? We're completely surprised. Now, the biggest contributor to the shock is the absence of belief. We're back to our text now. The absence of belief in Jesus' warning. And running a close second is the preoccupation with other things, including the proverbial notion that all is well when all is not well. In Jesus' teaching, he makes a link between the thinking of Noah's generation before the great flood in his own day of judgment. And here's what he says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were doing what? They were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. Matthew 24, 37 and verse 38. In reading this, we might think, well, of course. I mean, of course. God just opened the heavens. He broke up the springs and the underground rivers with no warning. Well, of course, they were surprised. Hmm, not so. Not so. It took Noah 120 years to construct the ark, and you can be sure the mockers were at the building site, ridiculing his efforts as the years plodded on. But 2 Peter 2, verse 5, describes Noah as, and these are the scripture words, a preacher of righteousness. Preacher of righteousness. An evangelist. So Noah was not simply wielding a hammer and a saw. He was wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we read in the Bible, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Hebrews 4, verse 12. So he's out there wielding that sword. And that sword is doing its work. It's bringing about conviction. It's bringing about thoughts of judgment. But while Noah's generation had lots of time for pleasantries, eating, drinking, wedding parties and the like, they had no time for serious contemplation of Noah's repeated warnings of impending judgment. They were too preoccupied with having fun and indulging in sin. I mean, Noah was a killjoy. He was a grumpy old man with a downer message of gloom and doom. They knew better, and they bet on the status quo. What's he talking about, a flood? What's a flood? I don't know what a flood is. Look in the Bible, there was no rain up to this period of time. The earth was watered from a mist. 
that came up from the ground. Solomon's analysis also applies here. Here's what he says. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It's better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the songs of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Ecclesiastes 7, 4 through 6. The fools are laughing when they ought to be mourning. They're chuckling it up. <laughs> They're ridiculing and mocking when they ought to be listening and applying what's being said. What occurred in Noah's day is predicted to occur in the day of the Lord. Paul states that Jesus' return will be like a thief in the night, that is by surprise, without warning. But what are the people saying? Verse 3 of our text. While people are saying, peace and safety. That's what they're saying. And while they're saying that, destruction will come on them. Boom, sudden. They're singing the songs of fools. What is this? The people are in denial. That's what it is. They're not heeding the signs of Jesus' coming. They're not listening to the warnings of the watchmen. They're too interested in showing up their own resolve with false notions of peace and safety when judgment's black cloud is hanging over them. That's our world. That's our society. That's the United States. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? The Bible we have with the forewarnings of Christ and his apostles are available everywhere. They are. I mean, if you cannot afford a Bible, Gideon's International We'll give you one for free. Hey, our church will send you a Bible for free if you just send us your name and address. Requesting one. But the problem is not lack of information. The problem is lack of faith coupled with a preoccupation with fun and play or an outright denial of impending judgment. All is peace. No need to panic. We're safe. We're secure. Don't be an alarmist. This is the song and the laughter of fools, which is the proverbial burying of one's head in the sand so as to avoid seeing the bad things coming that are already on the horizon. Do you know that this has occurred time and time again? God rebuked his people in Isaiah's day, and here's what he said. They are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. I'm reading scripture. 
they say to the seers, see no more visions. They say to the prophets, give us no more visions of prophecy. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way. Get off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says. Because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression, depended on deceit. Now I would even say here self-deceit. This sin will become for you like a high wall cracked and bulging that collapses suddenly in an instant. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you, you would have none of it. Isaiah 30, verse 9 and following. The people of Isaiah's day were saying, Don't confuse me with the facts. Tell me pleasant, pleasant trees. Speak comforting words, not, not judgment words. If you can't speak pleasant words to me, then, then don't say anything at all. Brethren, do you know that this sin of rejecting God's message and opting for man's spin on things is predicted by Paul to occur in our day? Let me read it for you. The time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires... They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. 2 Timothy 4 verse 3. I think King James says, tickle their ears. What's that? That's the sin of Israel all over again. It's the sin of Israel revised. Speak to us pleasantries. Get off this path of the Holy One of Israel. Say things like, God loves you. Has a wonderful plan for your life. This is the major contributor to the surprise element in Jesus' return. Everyone has the book. Everyone can hear for themselves what many gospel preachers are forewarning. The documentation is available for all to read. The signs accompanying the prophecies are evident. But for the vast majority of the race, Jesus' return, His judgment, will take them by utter surprise. Utter surprise. And that's real folly when you have the information in front of you and you can read it or hear it preached. And yet, in your mind, you're thinking, oh, pastor, just chill out, you know. It's not that bad. The world will be surprised. Secondly, Jesus' second coming is no surprise to believers. Look at verse 4 in our text. 
But you brothers are not in darkness. There's that thief motif again. The thief comes at night. You are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. It's great contrast here. The world, yeah, they're going to be surprised, but not you guys. Not you brothers. He goes on. You are all sons of the light. Sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So we're in a totally different category. Characteristics of people of darkness, that unbelieving crowd that rejects God's warnings in preference to believing the pleasantries preached by unprincipled men, are not, are not the substructure of God's people. When God speaks, we listen. When he warns, we perk up and we obey. Not perfectly, but because of our sin, but we don't become mockers and ridiculers. When he gives direction, we follow. Verse 6, for example, warns us not to be asleep, but alert and self-controlled. Why? Because the asleep crowd, verse 7, sleep at night and comprise the drunkards who drink the night away, evidencing self-indulgence rather than self-control. The party animals live undisciplined and unruly sinful lives, living for the moment, caring nothing for the future, expecting the fulfillment of the delusions of their own optimism. I can't be bothered with judgment. You know, I'm having too much fun here. <laughs> That's the way they think. Verse 9, however, alludes to the coming wrath of God associated with this day of the Lord, verse 2, from which all believers are exempt, but from which no fun-loving, sin-indulging, lust-seeking unbeliever will escape. Why will they not escape? Remember the Isaiah passage we considered earlier? Where they were saying, Give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way. Get off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. That text in Isaiah. Well, in that same passage... God told them their only hope to escape His wrath. And here it is in verse 15. Isaiah 30, verse 15. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. Ah. Way of salvation door of salvation opened. But they said, nah, nah, we don't want to hear any of that. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of actions. Think differently and you will do differently. By the way, that's why people keep saying that education is the answer to everything. They're trying to educate, change people's thinking to get them to change <sighs> their actions. Nothing wrong with that if the education is right. If what's being poured in to one's mind and soul is the truth of God's word, 
is moral and upright and righteous teaching. If we believe God when He speaks, then the thinking of the world's arrogant, self-righteous, know-it-all philosophy will be seen for the folly that it is. Noah's generation ignored his preaching. They were fools. Isaiah's audience refused the prophet's warnings. They were fools. Jesus warned the people of his generation, the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. Matthew 12, verse 42. And the one wiser than Solomon is none other than Solomon's Lord, of whom Paul testified, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Colossians 2 verse 9. Did they know that God was walking among them? No. Many people of Jesus' day turned a deaf ear to his teaching and warnings as they do today. They too were fools, are fools. The end will be the same if they, if we, do not repent. So I ask, what awaits you? What awaits you? Do not succumb to the devil's delusion, which is that somehow, some way, you will, re you will receive a special dispensation from God. Well, you know, but, you know, I think no one cares what you think. You ought to care what God thinks. The psalmist says, How long will the wicked, O Lord, how long will the wicked be jubilant? They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers are full of boasting. They crush your people, O Lord. They oppress your inheritance. They slay the widow and the alien, they murder the fatherless, that would be the orphans. And they say, the Lord, does not, <laughs> the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob pays no heed. Take heed, you senseless ones among the people. You fools, when will you become wise? Does he who implants the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eyes not see? Psalm 94, verse 3 through 9. You ever ask the question, why would anyone say of God, He does not see, He pays no attention? Why would they say that? Solomon gives one answer for us to consider, and it is this. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, in other words, the judgment does not fall on him immediately, I know that it will not go better, that it will go better with God-fearing men 
who are reverent before God. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them. And their days will not lengthen like a shadow. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11 through 13. What is he saying? Solomon has observed that when wicked people commit their crimes and nothing bad happens to them, they are emboldened to continue on in their wickedness. These are the people who say of God, He does not see. He pays no attention. The thought is this. If God did see and was aware of what was happening, He would do something about it. He would punish the wicked. He would thwart their evil intent. So, the lack of quick judgment from God must mean that he is indifferent or uninformed or worse, impotent to act. That's the way people think. I've done this evil thing many times. I've gotten away with it every time. The sky's still there. Not the boulders didn't fall on me. No lightning bolt from heaven. God doesn't see and God doesn't care. Such people mistake, mistake the long-suffering of God for leniency. The lack of immediate judgment for indifference on his part. Peter gives us a different perspective. Here's what he says. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. And in verse 15, he says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Have you ever considered that evil men are not judged immediately by God, immediately now, to give them time to repent, time to be saved? Well, let me ask a serious question. How long did God bear with you before you came to faith in Christ and renounced your sin? Was it the first sermon you ever heard of the gospel? I'll bet not. Maybe there's somebody here that that's happened to. Well, I'll bet it was many sermons and many gospel tracts and many people talking to you about the gospel. Paul asked the question of his Roman audience, Do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience? Not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance. Romans 2 verse 4. Paul's own testimony was this, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display what? His unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on Him and receive eternal life. 1 Timothy 1, verse 16. He is saying, 
If God could be patient with me, the worst of sinners, if he could save me, he could save anyone. He has saved me to show how patient he can be with sinners. Now don't despise that, you know. And he also gives, Paul does, a similar analysis to what Peter gave, and here it is. He gives a two what-if scenarios. Follow the logic here. What if God, choosing to show His wrath and make His power known, bore with great patience the objects of His wrath, prepared for destruction. So he says, you know, here's God. He's ready to mm, send the lightning bolt. He's ready to fry you. He's ready to condemn you to hell right on this spot. He's ready. He's got the power to do it. But what if instead he bore with great patience judging you? That's something to think about. He goes, here's the second what if. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Romans 9, 22 through 24. Nobody thinks about this. Lord, zap him! <laughs> you know? He's ready to zap. He's able to zap. But he wants to magnify the glory of his mercy. So he's patient. He holds off. Brethren, this is deep stuff. And we don't think about these things. But we need to think about these things. That wicked, evil person that you know that appears to be ruining other people's lives and getting away with it, that one on whom you wish the judgment of God would fall might very well be the next Paul who went from murderer of Christians to the greatest apostle of Christ and advocate of Christianity who ever lived. Oh, and you need not dream that big. What about your friend? What about your relative? Lost in selfishness and sin. Among the pleasure-seeking crowd who proclaim peace, peace, when there is no peace. God's patience may mean his or her salvation. A day of mercy yet to dawn upon them. So don't be quick to become angry over the wicked. Learn patience with God. Be men and women of mercy. Pray and don't faint. If Jesus' second coming is no surprise to you, let me tell you, you are ahead of the curve. Verse 8 of our text says, Put on faith and love as a breastplate. And the hope of salvation as a helmet. Let that hope 
govern your thinking. Be right up here where it needs to be. Now lastly, consider Jesus' charge to believers to be ready for his appearance. You all know about the parable of the ten virgins. It's in Matthew 25, verse 1 and following. Jesus is teaching, he says, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars among, along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Matthew 25, 1-5. This is the account of ten women, all of whom had hopes that they would become part of the wedding party when the handsome prince arrived, opened the door of the banquet hall, and invited them all in. They knew the prince was coming, but they didn't know when. Therefore, they had to spend some time waiting. And in keeping with waiting, they carried oil lamps to provide light. Five of this group took along extra oil for their lamps, batteries for their flashlight, so that they would not be caught in the dark. Five others just relied on the oil already in their lamps, but that fuel soon became extinct. The wise women knew that they could not sell some of their reserved oil lest they run out. So off the five foolish went to buy oil from the merchants. <laughs> and sure enough, they're gone. Verse 6, At midnight the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Now I gotta ask. Who starts a wedding banquet at midnight? What a weird hour to have a wedding party. But that's you see the point. At the time least expected, like a thief in the night, the prince appears, and only half the women are prepared. Later the five foolish women return, having purchased more oil, and they say, Sir, sir, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know. I don't know you. What was it like in the time of Noah when the flood valves of the sky were opened and the subterranean rivers and springs broke through the surface of the land and began to flood the valleys? Let me read it for you. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, notice how much detail is here. On that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And on that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of the three sons, entered the ark. 
They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah. He didn't go out hunting. They came to Noah by God's direction and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then there's this little phrase at the bottom of verse 16. Nobody reads it. No one considers it. I'm reading it. You should consider it. Then the Lord shut him in. That's what happened on this day. Then the Lord shut him in. Genesis 7, verse 11 through 16. What's that? The door was barred. No one inside could come out. Even more horrendous was the truth that no one on the outside could come in. I'm sure people pounded on the door. Let us in! Noah, don't leave us out here! Open up! Open up! Back to the wedding banquet of our account. Luke writes it this way. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, Oh, oh, oh we ate and drank with you. Uh, you taught us in our streets. Yeah, you know us, you know us. Remember? But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself thrown out. People will come from east and west, north, south, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. But not you. Not you. Luke 13, verse 25 through 29. The moral of the story, verse 13 of our text, therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. What is he saying? What is Paul saying? Be prepared. Keep watch. You don't know when the Lord's coming. You just know that he is. And then the last charge that Paul gives here, one that we should keep in mind. There is no second chance for repentance, reformation, or revitalization of faith. No second chance once Jesus comes. I use the word chance because that's the way everyone thinks. People believe that if they mess up their lives in some way that brought heartache or pain or punishment to them, they, they think that if they are remorseful, they deserve a second chance. We hear it all the time in the news. How many chances have to come and go 
before they will take God seriously. Noah preached for 120 years before the flood hit, but Jesus observed, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day that, up to the day that Noah entered the ark and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And this is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew 24, verse 38 and 39. Did I read that right? They knew nothing. Brethren, they knew nothing because they believed nothing that Noah taught them. That's why they didn't know anything. They knew nothing because they believed nothing that Noah had to say. The scripture says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Proverbs 1 verse 7. A fool finds no pleasure in understanding, but delights in airing his own opinions. Proverbs 18 verse 2. Or again, the mocker seeks wisdom and finds none, but knowledge comes easily to the discerning. Proverbs 14 verse 6. God told Noah's generation then, the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever. For he is mortal and his days will be 120 years. Genesis 6 verse 3. God is patient. Yes, he is. His long-suffering. He's very long-suffering. He will put up with a lot from his willful creatures. But that said, you must know, you must believe that there is an end to the patience of God. For many years, let me, I'm reading scripture from Nehemiah. Nehemiah says, For many years you were patient with them, Israel. You, God, were patient with them for many years. By your spirit you admonished them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention, so you handed them over to the neighboring peoples. Nehemiah 9, verse 30. That's why they went into captivity. Yeah, he was patient, he's patient, he was patient for many years. Well, it gets to the point. Let me put it this way. Brethren, years of second chances pass us by. And still people dig in and refuse to hear God when he speaks. Death slams the door, it seals it forever, as surely as Noah's was sealed in the ark, permitting none to enter thereafter. And Jesus told the account of the rich man who died and a poor beggar who died named Lazarus. And here's what the account says. The rich man went to hell and he had what we would call unbeliever's regret. He knew there was no second chance for him. But he had love and concern for his brothers that were yet living, and so he proposed this to Abraham in paradise. Here's what he said. I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses 
and the prophets. He's talking about the writings of Moses, first five books of the Bible, plus the prophets, that's all the rest of the Old Testament. They have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, the rich man said, but if someone, if someone will come from the dead and go to them, they will repent. Abraham said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Prophetic words, right? Luke 16, verse 27 through 31. Don't we have someone who's risen from the dead? Has that convinced anybody? There's no second chance. You need to be ready now before the coming of Christ. You need to be ready before you die. And that's why the writer in Hebrews 3 verse 7 says, The Holy Spirit says, The Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Today. I could say it this way. You have today. You have this moment. Paul writes, therefore, there is now, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Romans 8, verse 1. Are you in the now with Christ? Believers are prepared for Jesus' coming. No surprises for them. No being locked out of the kingdom. Because they are alert. They're ready. They've been reconciled to God through the blood atonement of Jesus the Savior. I'm asking you the question, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you prepared? There's no second, third, fourth, or 150 chances. Today's the day of salvation. Do you know that more than 150 chances has already come your way and gone, and you're still sitting on the fence. Jesus put it this way, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains, remains on him. John 3, verse 36. I would say today salvation is within your grasp. It's nearer than the day before. But woe to you if you neglect so great a salvation. Listen to him who speaks from heaven. He says, come to me. All you are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. What a glorious invitation from a gracious, patient, merciful Savior who delays His coming, delays the outpouring of His wrath so that you 
will repent and be saved. But I warn you, there's an end to the patience of God. Just because we don't know the day and the hour of Christ's coming doesn't mean that it's not set in the archives of heaven. And when that day arrives, the door will be shut and you'll be locked out of the kingdom, looking in with unbelievers' remorse. Our Lord, help us to see how important it is to be prepared for your coming. And you've written it all in the book so that we can be prepared. Forgive those people sitting on the fence, sitting on the fence, sitting on the fence. They've been there for years. They're looking for second chances, third chances, fourth chances, 150 chances. They think they're going to get a special dispensation if they're remorseful in the end. Well, number one, they won't be remorseful. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, gritting teeth in defiance, but no remorse. Repentance is your gift. Faith is your gift. We pray that you will grant that to any here that are out lost and outside of Jesus. They're not ready to meet Jesus. I pray that you'll bring them to that place of full atonement and faith in your in your sacrificial work. And for we who know you, may we be prepared and ready. May we be watching. May, may we be living holy lives. May we be salt and light to the world. As Jared spoke of the other week. So <clears throat> that so that our friends and relatives and those that we love might hear the good news of the gospel and believe and come to know you. Forgive us for our indolence, for our apathy, for our weakness, for our lack of speaking, for our poor example in terms of living the Christian life. Forgive us, but Lord, do more than that. Change us, change us. Make us more like Jesus. Maybe rise to all of the duties that Christ has laid on his church. Evangelism, supporting the church, being in fellowship with God's people, studying the word together, being people of prayer. All those things that comprise the body of Christ that we're learning in the morning adult class with Jared. Lord, make us true and faithful about who and what we are. And save, Lord, that one that's closest to hell, closest to your calling, closest to death and destruction. Save that one today. In Jesus' name, amen.